Stem Cells at Lunch Digested is brought to you by the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. Hello everyone and welcome to Stem Cells at Lunch Digested. It's our wonderful pleasure all the way from Canada, I assume, to have Janet Rossant talking with us today. Um, Janet, would you like to just introduce yourself a little bit and talk about what you're going to be presenting at Stem Cells at Lunch next week? Sure, I'm Janet Rossant and I work in Toronto at the Hospital for Sick Children at the University of Toronto. Um, my work, my interests have really always been around how the early embryo, particularly in the mammal, develops. So working with mostly with mice, trying to understand how you get from a fertilized egg to the very first lineage decisions that the embryo makes, which involve making the cells that are going to make the baby but also make the cells that are going to make the placenta and other uh, extra embryonic membranes, the, the things that the embryo uses to survive in the uterus. And along the way, when you start studying the early mouse embryo, and you start thinking about the similar things that occur in human development, then you find yourself, or I found myself over the years, dropping over also into stem cell biology. Because from the early embryo, particularly what we call the blastocyst, the first stages at which specialized cell types arise, you can derive stem cells. The most famous being embryonic stem cells, which come from the pluripotent cells of the middle of the embryo, but also trophoblast stem cells and uh, Zen cells that actually are stem cells of all these other membranes that the embryo uses. Um, so what am I going to talk about in the in the talk? Well, I, inevitably, I'm sure I should talk a little bit about development and the, the way that the embryo makes its decisions. But I want to spend a little bit more time talking about what different kinds of stem cell states can exist. So when you take when you generate stem cells from a blastocyst, these pluripotent cells, we've always thought of them as sort of one special cell type, that they are the cells that can give rise to every cell type in the body. And actually years ago, my colleague Andras Naj and I made mice out of embryonic stem cells, showing they're truly pluripotent, and my favorite experiment. But over the last few years, number of different labs working in mostly in the mouse, but also to some degree in the human, has started to find that you can get different kinds of states of pluripotency. The stem cells are not all the same. And the question is, are those stem cells really reflecting different states that we find back in the embryo? So that's what I'm going to be talking about. And in particular, I'm going to ask whether it's possible to actually capture a totipotent state. So what's totipotent and pluripotent? What do all these things mean? Well, totipotency means you can make everything. Um, pluripotency is the state at which the cells occur in the blastocyst and they make every cell type in the body, but they don't make placenta and other cell types. So they are pluri, but not toti. Toti means you can make everything. So the fertilized egg is a totipotent cell by definition. It makes absolutely everything. Um, and the question is, can you capture a stem cell state that is actually totipotent? So there have been a, a number of recent papers, again, looking at uh, stem cell states that appear to be more totipotent, that can make trophoblasts and other cell types. So I'm going to talk about the criteria that we would use to define a totipotent stem cell. And I'm going to suggest that most of the cell that are out there at the moment 
don't fully fulfill those criteria. <laughs> um, that they are different states again. So there are different ways of capturing this pluripotent state. And some of them may be able to fall over a little bit into other cell types. But there's nothing that we've anyone has produced yet that really is a stem cell that is fully capable of making all the cell types, the embryo. So as a quick interjection in that, that sounds extremely exciting. Very much looking forward to your talk. Um, you, I know you got a bit of a start when you were working with frogs and other animal models. And there was a review that just came out by a group in Cambridge, the Boraviac Lab, talking about primate models of extraembryonic development. Will you be talking more about totipotency in the mouse, which is what you're familiar with? Or what do you think of these other models, like animal organisms that are being used to study extraembryonic lineages? Well, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a mouse specialist, so mostly what I'm going to talk about is the mouse. But of course, you certainly want to know whether the same thing applies in humans. And certainly the different stem cell states, people are working, going backwards and forwards between the mouse and the human. And there's a lot of argument, again, as to how similar even the mouse and the human are. So that's when people want to work with, you know, marmoset models, non-human primates. You just have more access to, to material than you would necessarily with humans. But it's clear that there are differences. There are differences in the genes that regulate early development. And related to that, there's probably also differences in the stem cell states that you can get from the embryos. So it's important to sort of, the mouse, you can just do so much in the mouse. So it gives you that basic outlines, but you certainly need to work with the other systems as well you know, and do some comparative analysis. And in a similar vein, um, I mean, Kings and a lot of these labs are quite famous for working for you know, cell therapies and translational and working in models like organoids and you know synthetic embryos. And do you have any opinions on how like how those can work together? Because a lot of this is all synthetic and in vitro. Like, what's your take on that? Well, first of all, I never call them synthetic embryo <laughs> because they're not synthesized. They are natural aggregates of cells that we grow in culture. They are cell aggregates. Um, so they're, they're stem cell-based embryo models is the current terminology we're trying to get into the literature and get accepted. So I think synthetic embryos is great when it uh, goes into the newspaper, but it does give people uh, a a misleading idea of what they are, that somehow we're making, uh, manufacturing embryos. That's not the case. So what do I think about stem cell-based embryo models? I think, again, obviously in the mouse, they, they can, the blastoids and the ETX, the sort of little post-implantation embryoids that uh, the Zonitscher Goetz lab has made, blastoids from Nicolas Rivron, are very interesting um, but they're in the mouse, we probably don't really need them. We've got the embryos. But, 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 of course, if you translate that across into the human, then I think it is very powerful because obviously you could potentially access stages of human development that we can't readily access at all, particularly around the implantation stages. So I think that's where the interest lies, and I do think there's obviously, obviously there hasn't been a lot out yet in the human, but obviously people are working very hard. There was a recent paper by uh, Alfonso Martinez Arias talking about gastroloids, both in the 
mouse and in the human. And gastroloid is where they take embryonic stem cells in a 3D matrix and find that they can elongate and start to establish a sort of anterior-posterior patterning, mostly mesoderm patterning. It's not a whole embryo. Again, it's a piece of an embryo, if you like. But I do think these models are going to be very useful in the human. So it's, it's an exciting time. So we... I think that's a very fair point that, you know, the mouse models may not be as necessary as the human ones. Um, you, like I was at a conference recently that I think you used to be the head, the president of. It's the International Society for Stem Cell Research. And, um, Christine Mummery is now the president of. And a lot of talk has been happening around human models and, for instance, my uh, careless usage of the word synthetic embryo was something that was actually discussed at this conference and nomenclature and how we should be referring to gastroloids and such models. And she just had a big interview out about uh, legislation around, you know, anything that's fetal derived or embryonic and how that's a real problem in the United States currently legislatively, because there's a lot more language coming in about where these embryos are sourced. Do you think that this is going to be something that's going to affect the future going forward in this kind of research? Or do you think that this just has to be something where scientists and legislators work closely together? What would your experience with that be? Well, yes. I mean, the ethical issues that come into play as soon as you move from mouse to human get very complex. So certainly fetal tissue research, actually working with human fetal tissue, is under considerable threat, I would say, in the United States right now. Uh, and that, that has limitations, not just for what we're talking about in studying early development. So fetal tissue research is very important. There are many uses of fetal tissue uh, that are going to be affected by any ban that takes place in the States. It's not currently banned, but everything that you want to do with NIH funds has to go through a special committee. I recently read that many of the people on that committee, of course, are people who are opposed to fetal tissue research. So it's a very difficult situation. When we talk about stem cell-derived embryo models, there is also some concern that people may actually worry that we are producing synthetic embryos, if you like. Uh, and so there are going to be some oversight issues, I believe, as we go forward with generating these kind of models. If, we really, if people are really trying to mimic the entire embryo, so a gastroid is not an embryo, it's a piece of you know, embryo, so you can study its development. Uh, if you make trophoblast stem cells, you can study how the placenta forms, but you're not making an embryo. If you put them all together, are you making something that could potentially make a human embryo? And so I think that there's a lot of um, discussion around guidelines and regulations in this area. Um, and it's, it's early days. So you're right. There's going to be a lot of ongoing discussion. Do you think that that's going to that there's any chance that something like that could be internationally regulated because it seems like with the US and the UK with Brexit and whatever is going on in the US it's very different from for instance legislation in Europe or Canada or Israel and then there's China which is on a completely separate track as well like do you think there's any way that all of that could be done cohesively or is it always going to be very different by country well so the ISSCR and she says now I can put I'll do a little plug for the ISSCR because the ISSCR uh, has guidelines for stem cell and embryo research and they're currently under review. I'm part of that 
review committee, uh, and we are looking at, you know, because things are changing all the time, so it's very important to continue to look at these guidelines. But the goal here is to really set up guidelines that at least uh, can be considered internationally. Of course, the local legislation and regulation wins, but, you know, we can at least think generically about what could be possible and what should be allowed and what should not be allowed. And so we are considering um, stem cell derived embryo models. We obviously the gene editing comes under that heading. Uh, we're looking at, you know, how long to culture human embryos, a whole lot of things that fall under there. And those those guidelines are under discussion now. And hopefully the new the new guidelines will come out in the new year. Uh, not to make this a very ISSCR centric podcast, however, there was a panel this year that really caught my attention in an unexpected way was the uh, women in science panel discussing you know, equity and what researchers are facing. And actually, I really think that something that we're going to have to contend with is how COVID-19 is affecting early career researchers, specifically parents, specifically women. Do you have any idea how people are going to be able to account for this in the future? And do you have any advice for early career researchers in those situations? Well, it's certainly, you're absolutely right. This is a difficult time, obviously, for everyone in this COVID situation. But women uh, and early career researchers, I think, are obviously concerned. Um, the funding is, you know, funding for research is still there. But certainly in this country, we're seeing that a lot of the charity type research, the money is being cut back because people are not giving to those charities. They're focusing on other issues. Early career investigators are finding that they can't go into the lab and get their, their, their work done. And of course, it's particularly for women, family, people with young families. This is a really tricky time. Do I have any advice? I wish I could. I think institutions are and should look very carefully and make sure that they uh, adjust the timescales and everything for people to do their PhDs, for people who are doing postdocs to extend the time period for postdocs. And if you're a young faculty, to extend the period for um, coming up for tenure and all those decisions. But it is a difficult time that there is no question. Of course, we want to open up the economy and send kids back to school and daycare. And I don't know what it's happening in the UK, but certainly right now in Canada, they're talking about going back in the fall. They have plans and everybody is really concerned as to whether. I agree. I'm trying to think if there's a slightly more uplifting note to end this uh, interview on. Well, let, let me just say one thing that, that I think has come to me, has come out of the COVID situation. First of all, it's amazing how many people, how many scientists have turned their research and turned it into something that can be useful for the COVID situation, not just making vaccines, but all sorts of different areas, developing, you know, improving the testing. So a lot of the labs here have turned into testing labs because they can do it better than the public health labs can, for example. My lab has, has been uh, uh, turning our expertise in gene targeting to try to generate a better COVID receptor mouse model, human putting the human receptor into the mouse. So, you know, everybody is doing that. So I think that's one thing. Secondly, it's science is what's going to get us out of this. And so I think that the importance of science and investing in science is something that we can all speak to and speak to very strongly. So science is going to be the answer. Um, again, there's a rush to publish. So 
You know, some science comes out that is not as good as it should be. That's bad, and it's bad for science. Uh, we have to really make sure that the science that comes out is, is excellent. But it's going to also tell people that all those people who suddenly transformed their lab into working on COVID, they weren't COVID researchers. They weren't being directed into this. They were doing all sorts of things. But the skills they had, broad skills, turned out to be really exciting and really important. So, you know, even embryos have their roles. Oh, I couldn't dream of a better way to end this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Stem Cells at Lunch. And thank you so much for your time, Janet Rosson. That was a delightful and uplifting interview. Thank you, Geraldine. It's been fun.